Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Alrighty, welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast. This is a very special episode with Zach Polker and Hannah St. Mary, soon to be Hannah Polker. <laughs> <laughs> and where we're we recording from, Zach? We are recording from an abandoned missile site. That's all I really got. Uh, Aer- Aerojet, <laughs> I think is the name. Jack Parsons. Till there goes the beer. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell the quick story about the Aerojet. So this guy named Jack Parsons, he didn't graduate college. He got a grant from the federal government to set up this missile facility. And they were going to, I'm not exactly what type of fuel they were going to use, but I think it was, was it gas powered? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah, it's abandoned <laughs> and it's very creepy and... I can see someone spray painted red rum right next to me. So good. Oh, great! Some shining references. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm here in the Everglades at this missile silo with Zach Polker. Zach, can you introduce yourself? My name is Zach. I'm a DPT student right now at the University of Saint Augustine, and I've known John for how many years have we known each other? A lot. 10, 15, 15, yeah. Yeah. And Zach's one of my good birding buddies, uh, along with Tim Mastracci. And then his soon-to-be wife, Hannah St. Mary, is with us, too. Hannah, introduce yourself. I'm Hannah St. Mary, uh, like you said, (laughs) and I'm a registered nurse. And I also love birds and animals and wildlife. I'm not too keen on creepy buildings, but uh, sometimes I can be talked into stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so the reason we ended up here is our first spot we were going to record. Uh, the local Boy Scout troop was fishing there, and uh, so we left them alone and said, <laughs> came to this abandoned, the creepy one, different types of missile silo. The one place I didn't want to come, fire. but <laughs> we're here. <laughs> we're doing it. And today's episode is based on Zach's suggestion. When I told him I was coming down to Florida to visit him and told him I wanted to record some Dirty Bird with him, he sent me an idea for the Roseate Spoonbill. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Zach, uh, why did you request the uh, Roseate Spoonbill? I don't know too much about them, but they're a beautiful bird and kind of look like a flamingo, but mixed with um, like almost like a platypus-looking bill. Mm-hmm. I don't really know how you'd... It's Bill looks like a spoon. But they're endangered, so... So, no, Zach, that was a great, great pick with the Roseate Spoonbill. I didn't know much about them, but I totally had a blast researching all about them. So, I don't know. Let's go into it. So, just to start off, the Roseate Spoonbill, its genus species name is Platylea ayaya. And the Platylea comes from its genus name. It includes six different wading birds that all have the same broad bill is it this uh roseate spoonbill is the only one of its species that's here in north america all the rest of them are like in africa and eurasia and stuff like that uh but the platylea is latin for broad of course because they have that broad bill okay and then the uh, yaya is actually pretty cool how it got that name because everywhere i'd see it would say old brazilian name and i'm like okay what does old brazilian mean like is this portuguese or what but actually i found a reference from the tupi people of the amazon that settled it about three thousand years ago and they called it uh avaya which means pink and then it got kind of switched to ayaya which is ajaj which is what it kind of got translated to i did see one thing on the audubon society where they said 
a yaya meant like something in Greek for like a mythical bird, but I could never really follow that up. So we're going with the two P people. But um, then it's in the family um, Threskiornithidae, which is like a big family that includes the ibises in it. And the ibises are super related to the spoonbills. And then finally, it's in the order Pelicanformis, which means like the same form as pelicans, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of the but, bird of the world. They're, yeah. they're bird of the world, they're all over. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of origins. But just like the general info about them, they're a wading bird that's found along the Gulf Coast, southern Florida, the U.S., and then they extend down into the west and east coast of Mexico, all around the Caribbean, and then down into South America. They are pink and white in their coloring. They're darkest underneath their wings. That's where usually they have kind of more a red or magenta color. And then their head is also colorful. They lose feathers as they get older, and their head kind of takes on more of a green-yellow color. And then they have a very bright red eye that's very prominent. They feed in the shallows of uh, brackish, uh, fresh saltwater areas. They feed on plants, fish, and crustaceans. And they're usually found in groups of two to four hundred, and usually in mixed flocks with herons, ibises, egrets, and pelicans. Two to four hundred? Yeah. Usually, you usually don't see a spoonbill alone. Usually, they're they're with others, and uh, they're you know a gregarious species. And then um, (laughs) they kind of have like a character characteristic spiral flight when they take off. They say the flocks will kind of spiral as they fly and then take off in one direction. And then they'll kind of do the same thing when they land, too. Is there a reason for that? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really didn't see anything about the reason for that. But um, Are they checking their sticks yeah. to see if there's any yeah. <laughs> predator around? Or? But no, I, I saw references to it. People are like comparing it to like the Sahara, the way some birds uh, do flight patterns out there. So yeah, it's probably like a whole like getting the flock together kind of thing. Yeah. And Rallying. Before you take off. Yeah, before you take yeah. off. But uh, that's kind of some general information about the spoonbill. What else do you guys want to know? Um, I'm interested to know about this plume war. The plume war. All right. Well, this is probably the most interesting fact that I can pull out about these rosettes here. There's, There's some cool stuff, too. But anyway, so the rosette and the population, the rosette spoonbill population in the Americas was uh, pretty good, but um, when settlers came over, there's a a trend, a fashion trend, mm-hmm. called the um, aigrette, which is French for egret, and um, it was like, you see like the old-fashioned stuff where they have hats that have like bird feathers mm-hmm. on them and stuff, like in like the 1800s, that kind of just went crazy as like a trend. Killing spoonbills for their feathers was always kind of a thing. Like the Native Americans did it a lot, and then in um, uh, in early Florida with the Spanish settlers, it was always a thing. Like uh, someone wrote about how in Saint Augustine, or Audubon wrote about how in Saint Augustine, you would always see women with fans made out of the tail feathers of spoonbills. Wow. But then in the 1800s, it became way more of a trend to have elaborate bird feathers on your hat. Um, Ostriches were really popular and snowy egrets were really popular and so are spoonbills because they have these pink and red and magenta feathers. Mm -hmm. So they really started to get killed off along with a lot of other um, egrets and herons and other species. Um, Yeah, one estimate is that they dipped down as low as 300 at one point. And to just give you an idea of how many were getting killed, in 1902 at a London auction, uh, there were 1,608 packages of heron plumes sold. So one package is about 30 ounces of uh, feathers. And when you work the math out, that comes out to about 120 um, herons per package. And then there were 1,608 packages sold. So that's a total of 200,000 herons that were killed to sell all the feathers in that total auction. Just, just one even, auction. Not yeah. even the spoonbills. That's, yeah, and yeah. that's just one auction Whoa. on wow. one day. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so sad. Do you think that would disrupt how they normally congregate in large groups? Yeah, because... There's, there's no 
was not enough. Yeah, so they would specifically kind of target the rookeries where, like, the birds would get together to breed and everything like that. Mm -hmm. That's one of the areas they would specifically target. And it was kind of like finding a gold mine. If you were out in the swamp and you found a rookery of birds, then, like, that's a whole congregation of feathers there, basically. That's a whole store. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, at one point um, in the late 1800s, snowy egret feathers were worth twice their weight in gold. So you can make a lot of money off of this. Yeah, the people that did this were called um, milliners. That's like a fancy name for like hat makers, basically. Haberdashery. um, (laughs) Or haberdashery. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it wasn't until the early 1900s that laws really began to be made against this. In like 1902, 1905, there was some legislation against the plume hunting. The 1910s, they really started to pass some plume laws. Uh, New York City was one of the big centers of selling these plumes. So once they passed a law outlawing it, it really cut the trade down. Anyway, one of the big things that protected a lot of these birds was the creation of the Everglades National Park in 1947, Mm -hmm. which is where we are recording from right now. Shout out. Yep. (laughs) So uh, that's kind of about the plume war there. I have a very, like... The plume war, like, also got very wary. also. Like, people were actually getting killed over these plumes. And I have a story about a guy named Guy Bradley, which I might save just a little bit, but... Uh, tell us about it. Tell us about... You want to hear about Guy Bradley? I want to hear about Guy Bradley. <laughs> All right. Let's freaking talk about Guy Bradley. Okay. So, to talk about Guy Bradley, I have to talk about the Cuthbert Rookery. So, the story about the Cuthbert Rookery, so... In the back in the mangrove swamps in the Everglades are some of the most important breeding areas for egrets, spoonbills, because they're really protected there. There, no predators are going to be able to get to where their nests are. And in 1889, George Cuthbert was paddling out, and he found this giant rookery, which was full of thousands of spoonbills and snowy egrets and wood storks, and he was a plume hunter, so he went out there, I think, twice and killed a bunch of birds. And in one of the times he went out there, he got like $50,000 worth of plumes. It became like a famous rookery for people to go hunt birds at. But then also once the Everglades and the Audubon Society started to protect these birds, it became a spot to try to protect all the birds at. So, like, early on in trying to protect all these birds, like, in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, a group of government officials, including the president of the National Association of Audubon Societies, T. Gilbert Pearson, uh, went down to Florida to see some of these rookeries where they had heard that a lot of birds were being killed and the plume wars and everything. And um, they were instrumental in getting guards to protect the Everglades sites where these uh, rookeries were. And originally there were only eight game wardens. There were two on Gator Lake, two in the Everglades, and two on Shark River. And they were basically to protect these birds from the innumerable amount of poachers that were out there. And these poachers were usually like just local people who knew they could make augment their living Mm. if they went out and killed some birds and then sold them to traders and everything like that. So you can imagine if you're one of eight <laughs> game wardens in the whole entire South Florida, basically. It's futile. There's a huge area. Yeah, yeah, it, it pretty much was futile, and they really dealt with a lot of stuff. So the story about Guy Bradley, I kept saying Brady, yeah. Jamie, it's Bradley. <laughs> we'll see. Bradley. I might have to go in and edit. This family's going to sue you. <laughs> well, if the Wilson family hasn't sued me yet, I don't think the <laughs> So this dude, his life should seriously be a movie. I'm not even fucking kidding. So he was born in 1870 in Chicago. Good year. And then 1870, good year? <laughs> what about that year? I don't know. I don't know anything about that year. <laughs> so his family moved to Florida, and his father ran a life-saving station on the shore of Fort Lauderdale for a while. 
a life saving station. Yeah. So these were like the predating the Coast Guard and everything uh, like that. Or the Coast Guard, Guard or... saving stations. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> Basically, yeah, they saved shipwrecked soldiers and that kind of stuff, or oh, sailors. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> shipwrecked sailors. So you can imagine little young guy Bradley learned to swim on the beach there at Fort Lauderdale. Then his uh, sister Flora died, which kind of changed a lot of things in his family. He became very sick too and almost died. And then they moved to around Lake Wharf. And their father eventually became one of the barefooted mailmen, who, before a lot of roads were developed in Florida, they would deliver all the mail by boats. And so his father was one of those guys who would, I guess, stay barefoot all day on boats delivering mail around to people in, like, the Miami, Lake Worth area. And originally, when he was a kid, Guy Bradley helped the plume hunters. Uh, One time, there's a trip he was documented to help kill 1,397 birds. That's a lot. So he's a villain to start yeah. off with. Oh. This is the origin story. <laughs> <laughs> so he got married, had a kid, and he worked some odd jobs while also still plume hunting on the side. But then with the passing of the Lacey Act in 1900s, which prohibited the illegal trade of wildlife and plants, that Guy Bradley finally turned the corner. And we have a quote from him here. So... With the passage of the Lacey Act, they were really looking hard for game wardens to help protect yeah. Southern Florida, and he sent in a application, and he quoted saying, I used to hunt plume birds, <laughs> <laughs> but since the game laws were passed, I have not killed a plume bird, for it is a cruel and hard calling, notwithstanding being unlawful. I made this statement upon honor. Notice he, how he says, I have not killed a plume bird. All he's still other, killed other birds. birds yeah. killed. <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> he's going to fix somewhere else. Hey, let's not hate on Guy Bradley, though, because his, he's, this is his redemption arc right here. So he was a plume hunter, and then he pledges his loyalty to the Florida <laughs> Audubon Society. They recommend him for the job, and then he's appointed as uh, game warden and deputy sheriff so that he can enforce you know, the laws. They only paid him about $35 a month, which is roughly equal to $1,000 a month today. Put that and in the amount of plume birds. How, <laughs> how, how many, many plumes? plumes is that equal to a month? <laughs> um, and his territory was to patrol the Everglades, Key West, and 10,000 islands. So he had a huge territory to patrol. And he would talk to the locals. He would educate people about not hunting the plume birds anymore. He'd put up signs. And then he also created a spy network throughout the Everglades and southern Florida, too, to try to combat plume bird um, hunting. But since he's kind of budding... What is that? Mockingbird over there. Oh, yeah, it is a mockingbird. Maybe we'll hear it again. A little screech there. Yeah. He needs a cough drop or something. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. But as you can imagine, he wasn't very popular with the locals when he's basically cutting an extra source of income for them. So he was shot at on multiple occasions. People didn't really like him. Um, and in 1904, that Cuthbert rookery that I talked about, that uh, rookery where that um, guy had first found, mm-hmm. um, that was a major protection site. And one time... Um, Guy Bradley went to it, and it had just been shot up by poachers. And he said, you could have walked right around the rookery on those birds' bodies. Oh, my god! They gosh. were so thick. Uh, uh, yeah, just wow. the dead. Wow. Um, so that's kind of like a turning point for him. When that happened at the Cuthbert Rookery, he kind of, it seems like he kind of got uh, a little bit more aggressive with his policing. He especially clashed with this one family, the Smith family. Um, Now, the patriarch of this family was this guy named Walter Smith. He was a Civil War vet, I assume, on the Confederate side. Um, And he had two sons that would collect plumes with him. Um, Bradley Guy had arrested one of the sons, the oldest, Tom, twice, and had been threatened by Walter that if you ever arrest my son again, (laughs) I'm going to kill you. So Guy kind of 
knew a little bit what he was in for. But anyway, the story goes that Guy was at his home in Flamingo, Florida, and he heard some gunshots and took off on a boat. And then that's when he encountered the Smiths. I read uh, an account of it in Field and Stream from the January 1919 issue. It says, uh, One Smith was residing at Flamingo at the time, and Bradley, believing that Smith was going to Cuthbert Rookery, and also that he was molesting heron rookeries on the Oyster Keys, went out one afternoon to investigate the latter's sloop, which lay near one of the islands. He failed to return that night. Oh, okay. So he's gone. Yeah. So he was found about 10 miles away from uh, Cuthbert Rookery the next day, floating off of uh, Bradley Key, which is now named after him. He was in his um, boat and shot to death, basically. And Walter Smith was actually brought to trial. Um, He was locked in jail for five months because he couldn't pay bail. And then he had his trial. And in his trial, he said that Bradley pulled up to the men as they were loading dead birds onto their boat. And he tried to arrest them. And then Walter shot him with his hunting rifle. And believe it or not, Walter Smith was acquitted for (laughs) self-defense. What? Yeah. Um, But a little bit of retribution. While Walter Smith was in jail, uh, Bradley's brothers-in-law went to his house and burned it down. So they got it back at Smith a little bit, even though he was acquitted. (laughs) Yeah. But this was actually kind of the first in a string of murders over the Plume Wars. In 1908, two more wardens were killed by poachers, and this really helped to spur anti-plume legislation. So Guy Bradley was kind of the start of some other killings, which really prompted people to be like, all right, we got to handle this this plume war. Um, Guy Bradley was buried on Shell Ridge at Cape Sable, Florida, and the Audubon Society put up like a nice monument to him and everything, and it was a nice little grave site, but in 1960, Hurricane Donna washed both the grave and the monument away. So... R.I.P. God, Bradley. R.I.P. But yeah, I thought that was a cool story how he started as like a plume hunter and then becomes Changed protector. His ways. Yeah, yeah, I feel like it's like a, it needs to be a movie with like class. <laughs> yeah, I mean seriously, that's interesting though. Yeah, so that's poor guy. I mean, he was just trying to do good after he did so bad. <laughs> Man of conviction. Huh? Man of conviction. <laughs> <laughs> I think he redeemed himself. I, yeah. I think if he yeah. went up to heaven and mm-hmm. God's a stork, yeah. then... It's just like the Audubon. Uh, the the plumes took him up to They flew him up there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> said, we forgive you. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, so that's, a, that's about the plume trade there. Kind of a crazy time. And the plume trade was definitely instrumental in reducing the amount of spoonbills down to where they were almost completely gone. Um, I guess just to talk about, I guess I'll go into kind of like the evolution and history of the spoonbills a little bit. So the spoonbills as like wading birds kind of come from a old family of, of birds. You can imagine some of the early dinosaurs even walking in low-lying wetland areas and grabbing little fish and everything out of the, out of the water. And um, basically that kind of branch of wading birds uh, came off the tree of other birds about 80 million years ago during the Cretaceous. And it includes flamingos, petrels, storks, loons, cormorants. Um, one of the branches off of this is the shoebill. Have you guys ever seen that on that like David Attenberg Planet Earth documentary, the shoebill? It's like got this, it looks like a freaking dinosaur out in Africa. Mm. but. That was about 50 million years ago that that thing split off, and it's remained pretty much unchanged since then. So this is like a pretty successful strategy for birds. Um, The spoonbill itself, kind of the branch of its family split off about 16.3 million years ago, um, and it went on to speciate species such as the white-shouldered ibis, the red-naped ibis, and um, ibises and spoonbills are basically like almost one in the same. They used to be kind of split into two subfamilies because, I mean, if you're someone looking at ibises and spoonbills, you're like, these birds look a lot alike, except the ibises have 
one type of bill and the spoon bills have those flat bills. So like they must be two separate families, but actually they're like very, very closely related and kind of come off of the same branches of the tree. In fact, like the big separation in these wading bird families came about 39 to 42 million years ago. And this is like with the breakup of Gondwana and everything. When South America and Antarctica split, there was kind of a big split between the old world and the new world species of wading birds, uh, ones that were kind of stuck in South America and then the ones that kind of remained in Australia, Eurasia, everything like that. However, because a lot of these birds can fly long distances, they're pretty big, they, the old world species kind of ended up recolonizing North America. So it's not as clear cut as just the South America, Antarctica split, and then they were separated forever. Mm-hmm. There was still some kind of flying back and forth going yeah. on. However, the roseate spoonbill itself seems to be one of the most divergent species along the spoonbills. So it probably separated, did its whole thing in North America, and kind of settled into its own niche and species and everything, while other spoonbills on, in Africa and Eurasia were still differentiating. And the native tribes always kind of hunted it. Um, Zach, what's the, like, Indian tribe of Florida? What do you think of? Oh, my gosh. When you think, like, Indian tribe Florida or Hannah. Are they the Seminoles? Yeah, that's what you always think of as Seminoles. Yeah. But actually, the Seminoles, actually, there were, like, many other tribes here first. And the Seminoles didn't form until the Europeans arrived and started wiping out other tribes. And the Seminoles were actually formed more as a confederation with the tribes. I never really knew that. I always thought just it was always Seminoles here, but like no, they actually kind they of were grouping together yeah, with other tribes. Yeah, it was kind of a reaction to the Europeans mm-hmm. that the Seminoles were formed. So some of the native tribes, uh, the Calusa, the Ace, the Tequista, and the Jaga, um, likely hunted the spoonbills. They were kind of native to South Florida here. What would they hunt them for? So for meat and then also for their feathers um, and probably other parts of their body too. So on Key Marco Island around here, Key Marco uh, was actually the capital for the Calusa Native American tribe nation. And they have found ceremonial spoonbill masks there. And the Spanish uh, actually talk about, there's accounts from Spanish friars in 1697 that note that the Calusa tribe have these spoonbill masks that the spoonbill on it is six feet long. What? Yeah. Wow. So, so it was definitely like an important bird to their culture yeah. and everything. Um, later tribes like the um, Miklosuke and the Seminoles um, also hunted them, and they were important to them too. Um, in, but they really started to decline in the 1800s when they were hunted a lot. In 1842, U.S. Navy midshipman um, George Henry, he crossed the southern end of Lake Okeechobee, and he said he saw immense flocks of roseate spoonbills. And, however, Frederick Albion, Ober, in 1874, he was told by the Seminoles that spoonbills were abundant um, along Lake Okeechobee, but when he crossed there, he didn't see any. In 1928... Uh, another person went looking for colonies of roseates and in Lake Okeechobee and realized they were totally gone. So really the amount of roseate spoonbills had been totally decimated by then. And actually, the I referenced earlier about when Pearson went down with some other people from the Audubon Society in order to see some of the roosting colonies of egrets and spoonbills and everything. And they said that they saw hundreds of birds where there used to be thousands, and they only saw one lone little spoonbill, and which is like super rare. You usually see them in groups. Yeah. And really sadly too, they said after they left from going to see the birds, immediately the like fishermen who had taken them to go see the birds went back and shot them <gasps> all. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so messed oh. up. So there was a lot of... Uh, in what year was that? Or when was that? That was like in the early 1900s. Okay. So yeah, there's wow. a lot of conflict between people who wanted to conserve these birds 
and then people who wanted to hunt them and with trying to conceal where the rookeries were because like i said they're kind of like a gold mine if mm -hmm. you're trying to hunt and kill the birds john james audubon also uh talks about the spoonbills he draws a great picture of them which shows the green and yellow heads of the spoonbills really well and of course portrays the pink bodies he talks about how they're a common resident in south florida they may extend up to north carolina he notes that he sees them a lot along the gulf particularly in galveston bay texas and he talks about how he would crawl up on them to try to get as close as he could mm. and they're usually found in mixed flocks but um, Audubon talks about how if you find them outside of a flock, like where there's no other herons or egrets around them, they're much easier to sneak up on. So he says like the herons and egrets kind of act like watchers for the yeah. spoonbill. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I wonder if that suggests anything about their vision or their hearing or. It probably. Stuff. Yeah, it probably has to do with their feeding, which I'll talk about, but. While I'm here talking about Audubon, I'll actually bring up a pretty cool story about Audubon and Spoonbills. So he tells a story. He was on Galveston Bay, Texas, I believe. And he, doing what Audubon does, was out there, you know, shooting some birds. Well, actually, his son was with him, and his son was shooting some birds. They were in a boat out on some sandbars, and his son shot three Spoonbills. And his son gets out of the boat and is walking on the sandbars to go collect, you know, the bodies of the Spoonbills. Well, all of a sudden, they see a big fin <gasps> coming along the sandbar. And so they're, like, freaking out, yelling at Audubon's son, like, shark, shark. And everyone in the boat is trying to shoot at it. And the son is, like, shooting at it and running back to the boat. And um, apparently there's also people on the shore, too, like native uh, Mexicans and Texans. And they're all kind of watching this happen. And... Uh, finally, as he's getting up towards the boat and there's this big fin, one of the men on the boat, like, cuts off the fin of the fish and then, like, someone else stabs it and they pull it up and it turns out it's not a shark. Tarkin? It's actually a sawfish. Oh, wow. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. I've actually yeah. seen signs for those at South yeah. Beach. And they said it was a 12-foot-long sawfish, That's huge. which was and those huge. Those are dangerous, right? Or no? No, no they're yeah, not. Almost. Actually, they're pretty harmless. Okay. But um, but yeah, they're they're an endangered species. Yeah. Everything. So of Whoa. course, these guys are <laughs> killing yeah. it. But so it they, wouldn't have even hurt him. It was just kind of curious. No, maybe. it wouldn't have hurt him. Wow. Yeah, it probably wouldn't okay. have hurt him. But they thought it was a shark, I guess. Yeah. But anyway, they bring it to shore and roast it and have a big feast oh. for everyone. But oh my gosh. Yeah, that's kind of they a funny kill the unicorn. Like, yeah, yeah. they were all about couple. that. Wow. <laughs> but um, Audubon, since uh, being Audubon, he shot and ate every bird he could find. <laughs> but he says that the roseate spoonbill's flesh is oily and poor for eating. Okay. So folks out there, don't uh, don't eat a roseate spoonbill. Yeah. Unless you please. like oily. No, don't. It's <laughs> indeed. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Get the sawfish instead. <laughs> so it was largely eradicated after the plume wars. There was one estimate that there was only 300 left in the Everglades. A lot of their rookeries had been totally destroyed, and. Even after the hunting stopped, they took a while to recover and bounce back based on other species, such as the snowy egret. In 1935, R.P. Allen was kind of sent to study them, and his book about them called The Flame Bird is kind of the go-to about the roseate mm. spoonbill. So if you want more information, definitely go read that book. He spent a really long time looking at their behavior and everything like that. But they did eventually bounce back. They kind of took a little bit of a turn for the worse in the 70s and 80s when there's a lot of economic development. Something called the South Dade Conveyance System uh, of Canals was developed, which bypassed um, a lot of water going through the Everglades and so, and then kind of just dumped it straight into Florida Bay. And that changed the salinity a lot of the bay. And that really hurt um, the roseate spoonbills kind of living in South western florida so they're certainly not out of the woods yet but they are definitely doing better than when we were killing them to make hats. <laughs> yeah hats 
But uh, yeah, that's kind of a lot of information about their history and everything like that. What else do you want to know? Why are they pink? Why are they, like are they pink? Yes. So I'll talk a little bit about their feeding. So they're pink for the same reason that flamingos are. They get their pink from things called carotenoids, which they get from eating the minnows and shellfish and water insects. There's two main carotenoids that they ingest. There's canthaxoxane. Let me say that again. Canthaxaxin. Canthax... Canthaxaxin. Canthaxaxin. Canthaxanthin. There we go. Canthaxanthin, which kind of gives them the pink color. And then there's another one called Astaxanthin. And that one is really high in spoonbills for some reason compared to other wading bird species. But basically these carotenoids are produced by phytoplankton and microalgae, and then those get eaten by zooplankton, which then get eaten by insects, crustacean, fish, and kind of concentrate them more and more. And then of course the spoonbills are eating the insects, crustacean, fish, and kind of concentrate all those carotenoids in them, which then turns their feathers pink and red and magenta. So hypothetically, if we ate their same diet, would we have pink hair? <laughs> No. One way to find out. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try it. Go, go forage for some. <laughs> you eat enough carrots and you turn... Yeah, you turn orange mm-hmm. if you eat too many carrots. No, it definitely it's similar to people that turn orange when they, when they eat too much carrots. Oh. Yeah, interesting. So they feed... The reason why they have that spoon bill is they feed by tactolocation. So they'll kind of open their bill slightly in the water and they'll kind of swing it side by side and whenever they feel something hit it, they'll close their bill and swallow oh, it. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. It's like a trigger. There's yeah. A lot of those wading birds do that, right? They leave their beaks slightly open sometimes and... And wait for something to come in. Yeah, it comes So in. it's a little bit different from the way that um, birds such as herons feed, where they will kind of... Uh, and egrets will feed. Well, they'll kind of look for a fish to come along and then strike down at it. Yeah. So they kind of rely on sweeping their bill and feeding it, or feeling it, uh, maybe even tasting it, too. So do they have, like, bad vision then, or...? They might have maybe less vision than the herons. Yeah, Yeah, I would think probably less less precise. Yeah, they're probably more focused on the feel or the taste of it. Um, And they feed in these mixed foraging flocks, and this may be due to, like... Audubon was talking about, it's harder to sneak up on the spoonbill when there's herons and egrets around. But this also might be due to a beater follower behavior. And in this, the spoonbills act as the beaters. They kind of uh, stir up the mud and the aquatic vegetation and will scare out like fish or other things that then ibises or egrets will have an easier time eating. To be able to feed like this, though, like if you're going to go into a stream and start just feeling around for prey, you need like a high density of prey in there. So a lot of times you'll see them feeding in shallow pools at low tide where fish are kind of like concentrated in there. And they'll even time their nesting for when there's lower water levels. Also, their nostrils are located really high up on their beak, almost towards their eyes, so that they can keep their beaks down in the water like that and still breathe. Yep. That's cool. Let's talk about sex. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about spoon bill six. That they spoon a lot. Okay, never mind. Big spoon. spoon. That would be fun. They're a cuddle bird. I don't know about that, but... <laughs> so basically, spoonbills, they don't mate until they're in, like, their fourth year. Audubon says they have to go through about three different plumage stages until they kind of go into maturity. Is that, like, puberty? Like, yeah. plumage stages? Yeah, you know, each year they kind of shed their feathers that and they get closer and closer their to... Their bird balls uh, drop. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> They're just changing their outfit every yeah. year. They're going through their stages. Teenage year. Yeah. At first they're wearing vans and then... <laughs> they molt them. And... <laughs> <laughs> but from March to June is when they mate. And they have a initial courtship, which is a little aggressive. Kind of the male's pretty aggressive initially on. 
But then they go into a more like ritualized doing dances with each other. They will exchange nest materials. And then kind of the final thing is they'll like clap their bills together and even like hold each other's bill a little bit. Oh. Yeah, that's like the uh, the big thing there with the spoon bills. So yeah, they have a little like ritual and everything for mating. They'll form a multi-species colony when they nest. They'll nest in like a shrub or a low tree, usually on an island to protect them from predators. And they're serial monogamous, so they'll be monogamous for a season, but they might find a different mate the next season. But they do do some extra pair paternity, so they'll male and females will sneak off to do a little extra mating. Diversify their population. Diversify their gene pool. Yeah, and it's it's thought about like 8% in studies of uh, offspring, and each mating season will be from extra pair paternity. The male will collect the sticks for the female and help her with building this strong, stocky platform in a tree or a shrub. And then the female will line it and weave it with bark, twigs, moss. It's usually about two feet wide when it's fully complete and about five inches deep. So it's a pretty sizable nest. And they'll lay one to five eggs. They're chicken-sized eggs, which is kind of smaller than I expected. And they'll incubate them for about, like, 22 days. And then the nestlings will emerge. And when the nestlings emerge, they're pink. They have their eyes closed. They're unable to stand. They're really helpless. And they're like that for about 35 to 42 days before they finally start to walk around. And it'll take them about six to eight weeks till they can fully fly. When they're first born, they have straight bills, not that spoon bill. And they're a very light color because they haven't concentrated enough carotenoids yet. Until their parents feed them more, they'll start to turn a little bit of light pink. And then finally, they'll eat on their own and concentrate their own pink colors. And they won't really disperse to join other flocks. So kind of the youngs will hang around with the kind of the colony they were born with. And the young are kind of more prone to migrating off though and finding other areas so sometimes spoonbills will be like turn up in just random places they don't really migrate much but they they do fly from like their breeding grounds to other feeding areas they'll kind of fly across from cuba to the u.s and everything like that and um but sometimes the juveniles especially will get caught in storms and just end up in crazy places in 2018, there was a juvenile that was found in Bloomington, Minnesota. Oh, my so, gosh. <laughs> yeah. What? They'll really end wow. out in the middle of nowhere sometimes. Yeah. So as far as what kills spoonbills, so their eggs and their young raccoon, coyotes, foxes, hawks, snakes will, will eat them all. The adults might be taken by pumas, coyotes, raccoons, hawks. I saw raccoons being like a big killer, especially like in the Keys where we've built bridges to the different Keys now, and raccoons are able to walk along the bridges to get to the different Keys where previously the spoonbills would have pretty much like no predators or anything. Um, Of course, human hunting and the plume wars killed them off. Now it's really habitat destruction, waterway management, and storms that destroy the colonies. Since there's so few rookeries left, if a storm comes through and destroys the bush or tree that they like to nest in, it's really a big hit to the colony. Like that Cuthbert, um, that Cuthbert rookery that I was talking about that um, Guy Bradley died defending, it apparently had been hit really bad in Hurricane Maria, I think, and kind of reduced by half after that. As far as some parasites <clears throat> that like to prey on them, there's an esophageal nematode called capillara that likes to post up on them. There's a tapeworm called paradipolis diminuta. There's a kidney fluke called renicola rally, which sounds awful to have a little worm living in your kidney. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's um, post hodipostum minimum, which is a fluke from Cuba that they found. And so the it was kind of funny when they found it in them because the life stage that the fluke was at they could tell that the birds had come from cuba 
gotten the fluke there, hadn't gotten it here in Florida. So, yeah, that was kind of interesting. But really, they mostly get a lot of parasites from the fish or the um, crustaceans that they eat. And the parasites they get differ by the location that they're at, where they're at year by year. Although these parasites rarely kill them. Their three main killers are human disturbance, storms and floods, and then uh, not enough food. The population of the roseate spinbills is estimated about 100,000 to 250,000. Whoa. So, yeah, they're doing okay. Just in Florida, mostly? Some outliers? Or? Uh, I think that's total population. Yeah. Okay. I think it's estimated there. So, yeah, they're doing all right. All right. So, I'll wrap up talking about the myths and legends and stuff about them. Um, so, there is evidence that Spinbills may have been more widely spread in the U.S. than we originally thought um, because Audubon kind of talks in 1859 about people shooting them in St. Louis, Missouri, which is like way higher range than we think that they have. Um, and then also there's a grave that we found uh, dated around the year 200 where there was a headless spoonbill found buried alongside a 50-year-old male and a 5-year-old male. And this is, was in Calhoun County, Illinois. So, Interesting. Yeah, the and... year 200? Well, yeah, from the year 200 in Illinois. Maybe they yeah. went up the river um, from yeah. the Gulf. So yeah. that's what they think, is that either the spoonbill was kind of a rare one that, land, that ended up up the Mississippi River in Illinois and then was kind of killed and revered by the Indians at that time uh, because it was so rare. And the fact that it was headless, too, because they didn't find any evidence of his head, just the body. So they're like, well, they purposely removed the head, buried the body with them, but kept the head. But also pottery along the Mississippian tribes. In their pottery, the spoonbill is a major theme. And they especially find it around burial mounds and, like, urns that were used to bury people with or buried in tombs with them, they find the spoonbill used a lot. So they think there's some kind of connection there. Some sort and of religion aspect? Maybe the red eyes and kind of the... Yeah, maybe the, the red color of it, something like that. Um, and, but they're not sure whether this is just cultural spread or if these tribes actually interacted with the spoonbill. I would argue that this whole thing about the spoonbill being associated with death and burials comes from the Aztec or Olmec god Chipe Totec, and he's known as the Flayed One, and he's a major god in their religion. He's the brother of gods you might know of, such as Quetzalcoatl, the yeah. feathered serpent, um, and he's associated with death and disease, but also with spring and renewal. So every spring they would have a festival for Chipe Totec, and it would involve a lot of sacrifices and a lot of skinning, because he's okay. the flayed god, okay. so he's known for flaying people. <laughs> oh, Lord, okay. You couldn't have picked a better spot than I know, uh, than this creepy abandoned building to talk uh, about flaying people uh, with Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Feeling great. So, Hannah, this... <laughs> This ceremony would involve a person dressing up as Chipe Totec for 40 days before the big day. And they would dress in a, with a shield made out of spoonbill feathers, a crown made out of it, and also a jacket made out of the pink spoonbill feathers. Then during the festival, the impersonator of Chipe Totec would be skinned alive and sacrificed. And then their skin would be dyed and yellow. Why would you want to be a willing participant and dress up like the bird? And- I... I don't think you were willing to do this, I think. How do you go about it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but they would skin him and then dye his skin yellow, and then the priests would wear the robes, oh, or wear him as robes. Okay. And they were called the golden <laughs> robes because Chipe Totec was also the god of gold, <laughs> too. Um, another highlight of this festival was there were gladiatorial fights involving captives, versus the elite eagle or the elite jaguar warriors. And the jaguar or the eagle warriors would have wooden swords which were edged in and would hold wooden swords which were edged in sharp obsidian. However, their captives would have swords that were edged with 
uh, spoon bill feathers onto the blades. That's not a very fair fight. No, it wasn't. So they would just get cut to pieces. <laughs> but the red spoon bill was, uh, their feathers were used in outfits a lot for the Aztecs. They were used in battle outfits, um, and the Chipe Totec outfits were also worn a lot by rulers. They were really elaborate with gold and jewels, headdresses, and a lot of legends will kind of portray uh, the Aztec rulers wearing these spoonbill headdresses and everything. Wow. So yeah, our little okay. quiet abandoned place that. is like no longer. <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, any positive notes? I'm glad we saved the fun fact for. Yeah, we'll save some last fun facts. My quick fun facts about the spoonbill. A group of spoonbills is called a bull. A bull. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> the oldest spoonbill found was 15. That makes sense because spoons, bulls. Yeah, spoons spoon and bulls. Yeah. Wow, breakfast. <laughs> the oldest spoon bill found was 15 years old, 10 months. He was banded in 1990 in the Florida Keys and then found in 2006. And also spoonbills are kind of thought of as an indicator species for wetland health. Because if a wetland's doing well, then there's spoonbills there. Cool. Anyway, we're going to wrap this up and move on. Move on. From this move creepy on. place. Move on from the, from the creepy, creepy place. place. I want to see yeah. his sleeping bag room. Yeah, yeah, you go do that. So thanks, Hannah and Zach, for being here for this episode. Stay dirty, my birdies. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks, Zach. Woo! Thank you, John. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John Janusik, with our rotating panel of co-hosts. Thank you for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Our outro music is New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. And our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. Follow them on Instagram and check them out wherever you get your music. Graphic design by my beautiful fiance, Lauren McClure. Be sure to subscribe and rate Dirty Bird Podcast. Send listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice memo of your birding experience to have it read on the show. Until next time, stay dirty, my birdies. <laughs>